Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On the 7th of November, 1938, a 17-year-old Polish Jew, Herschel Grinspan, bought a revolver and a box of bullets in a Paris gun shop and took the metro to the German embassy. What happened next had far-reaching consequences for Jews throughout the whole of Europe. Vom Rath was sitting at his desk, his back to his visitor, facing the window which overlooked the rear courtyard. He was initialing a document. He spoke softly. Do please be seated. I'll be with you in a moment. The boy seated himself in a leather armchair a few feet from the desk. His gaze was drawn to a framed photograph of Hitler on the wall to his right. There's the architect of all our misfortunes. I'd give my life to have him in this room. Vomrath turned his chair so that he was facing his visitor. He smiled in an official way and said, Thank you for coming. May I see the documents? Have I seen this boy before somewhere? The boy's anxiety was now overwhelmed by the rage which had been percolating within him for so many months. His face flushed and the veins in his neck protruded. You're a filthy kraut, he shouted, and in the name of all persecuted Jews, here are the documents. Vomrath began to rise as Herschel pulled the revolver from his jacket pocket. Without really aiming, he fired five times, emptying the weapon. Two of the shots pierced Vomrath's body. One entered his torso and lodged in his shoulder. The other perforated his stomach, rupturing his spleen and penetrating his pancreas. Vomrath staggered to the door throwing a weak punch at his assailant's face as he passed, shouting for help, holding his stomach as he entered the hallway. The boy's rage evaporated, and he slumped back into the chair. I hope I've killed him, he thought. He dropped the revolver onto the floor and waited. In his second novel, Champion, Professor Stephen Deutsch sets Herschel Grinspan's story alongside that of German boxer Max Schmeling, who became a poster boy for the Nazis. Their stories reach a climax during Kristallnacht, a calamity which some have called the opening act of the Holocaust. I'm Rob Weinberg, and in this edition of Historical Fiction, I talk to Stephen Deutsch about his novel, Champion. 
This is Historical Fiction. Stephen Deutsch, thank you for joining us. Tell us about the story of your book, Champion. Well, there are two stories. The first story is about Herschel Greenspan, 17-year-old lad who finds himself without papers as a refugee in Paris, living pretty much trying to escape the attention of the police, and hearing that his parents had been bundled away with 25,000 other Jews from Hanover dumped in the rain on the Polish border. He becomes incensed, buys a revolver, and shoots a minor German official in the Paris embassy, Ernst von Rath. That's that story, and he is arrested, but before he comes to trial, the Germans invade, and he is then moved hurriedly south, which becomes an epic journey in itself. And his end, we think, came in Sachsenhausen in about 1942. There are lots of stories about that, conflicting, but none of them definite. The other part of the book is about the boxer Max Schmeling. Schmeling was a great boxer who had become world champion in 32, and in fact lost the championship in the second match. Um, but he beat Joe Louis before Joe Louis was champion. He beat him in 1936, and as a result expected to have a shot at Jimmy Braddock as the champion, but Lewis got the shot instead, and Lewis beat Braddock. And when um, Lewis and Schmeling met again, it was just an assassination on the part of Lewis of Schmeling. He demolished him in two minutes, I think four seconds. But Schmeling's journey from Nazi icon to discredited ex-hero to a Luftwaffe meant to be an instructor but actually finds himself in combat in Cyprus and then becomes an instructor or helps run boxing contests for the Luftwaffe and for the army and for the SS and then at the end of the war becomes the chairman of Coca-Cola Germany. That's an interesting story as well. So we have Max Schmeling, a real-life sporting hero in Nazi Germany. You paint a picture of a man who was quite reluctant about Nazism. I don't think he was a wholehearted Nazi icon. But, you know, like many Germans, he was also uneasy about the regime. But so many of his artists, friends, musicians, writers had disappeared. And what the Nazis stood for was not his cup of tea, as it were. But he was a prominent figure and perhaps, like many people, deluded himself until near the very end that those stories about the Nazi regime were essentially overblown. He tried to behave in a humane way and in fact one of the key moments in this story is when he saved two Jewish boys during Kristallnacht by hiding them in his hotel room. He also had a Jewish manager whom he defended from constant criticism and from Goebbels and Hitler trying to get rid of him and also to be fair after Joe Lewis retired he was one of the benefactors of Joe Lewis who was particularly hard up because of all sorts of tax problems that the champion had had. So I think he was a decent man but like many people living through times he had his share of cowardice as most of us would have. You know it was a hard regime to buck up against especially when they were winning the war. So you have Herschel Grinspan, this 
young Jewish lad who kills a minor German official at the German embassy in Paris, and then you have Schmeling, this real-life sporting hero. What inspired you to intersect their two lives in your novel Champion? They're really two sides of the same coin, you know. They're the opposites of what was going on at that time. They were both affected, Grinspan more tragically than Schmeling, by what was going on. But the main story is the story of that time, the story of how that time played out on individuals. In the case of the main individual, Schmeling, we see it played out very up close. But there are other people, the countless French refugees, the thousands upon thousands of deportees, not to mention 15 million people killed in the Holocaust, 6 million of whom were Jews, but nevertheless it played out in all sorts of appalling ways. It's a story of that time, which is the most awesome and terrible time of the 20th century by a long way. Tell us a little bit more about Herschel Grinspan. There were stories at the time that he actually had some sort of intimate relationship with Ernst von Rat. Was there any truth in that? And... If so, was this a politically motivated killing or could it have been seen as a crime of passion? Well, there's no evidence at all that he knew von Rath before the shooting. I made a little hint that he might have seen him in this Aurora Club Sportif in Paris, but simply to set up an ending for the book. He didn't recognise... The real ambassadors, they crossed paths as Herschel was entering the French embassy. He was just taken to von Rath because he was the official available. I think that Herschel's, from what I can read, Herschel's sexuality was fairly ambivalent, to say the best. And he might have been asexual, he might have been homosexual. But there's no doubt that von Rath was a practicing homosexual. And when the doctors examined him on his then deathbed, they discovered that he had anal tuberculosis and other signs of homosexual infection. So his brother, in fact, had been demoted for homosexual acts while in service, although not killed. The Nazi regime was not quite as monolithic and quite as single-minded in everything, as history books tell us, because history books need to draw a clear narrative. There are all sorts of things going on that were different from... I mean, for example, there were thousands of Jewish Mischlinger half-castes in the Wehrmacht, one of whom got to the rank of colonel. When we think about that now, we're actually quite astonished because of the blanket view of the way we see that period. I'm not saying that these guys were good guys. They were appalling. They were some of the worst people in history. But nothing is a single line. Nothing is a coherent thread. You know? And what a novelist does is because a novelist is telling a story in much the same way a historian is. A historian is presenting us with a narrative. A novelist tries to illuminate the inner lives of the people in the narrative as much as possible. We don't know what Herschel said to his uncle. We know almost nothing about Herschel Greenspan before the events that took place. We know nothing very much about Max Schmeling except his press cuttings and what he wrote in a flimsy, photograph-heavy autobiography. We know very little about those times. So we need to, if we want to tell the story, we do create a narrative. And we try to do it 
as intelligently and as sensitively as we can without doing violence to the lives of the people we're portraying. I mean, for example, three years ago or so, a photograph appeared in The Guardian and I think The Telegraph and other places purporting to be a photograph of Herschel Greenspan in 1946 at the end of the war, protesting against British refusal to allow Jews into Palestine, and photographic evidence was that this looked like a 95% match. But he was never heard from again. My view is, having read a lot about Grinchman, is that his narcissistic personality would not have allowed himself not to be noticed. You know who I am? I did this, I did that, I'm a hero. Or he would have found his aunt living in Paris. He would have made himself known. But there are some people who think that he was alive in '46, that he survived the war. How do we know these things? We don't. We can only surmise. And we try to do it in the way that's, for a novelist, that's most coherent in terms of writing a story, but also trying not to change history in any meaningful way. I don't turn these people into good guys. In fact, if anything, every character is an ambivalent character, with exception, perhaps, of the real champion who's depicted on the cover, but not, on the, not as a photograph, and that's Joe Lewis who did more to change the world by empowering black people in the United States a little bit than either Schmeling or Grinchpan ever could have accomplished. The boys ate slowly but steadily, demolishing croissants spread with butter and plum jam. They had already eaten boiled eggs and cheese. As they were drinking their milk, they could hear new shouts and shatterings below. Henry walked to the window parted the curtains just far enough to look down. What is going on, Max? Why are people doing all this? Max thought for a moment. You know, I really don't understand it myself. He could see that the boys weren't satisfied with that answer. You boys know that my life is based on boxing. They nodded enthusiastically. And in boxing, people try to hurt each other. That's part of it. But not all of it, of course. And sometimes there is anger in the ring, but it never lasts very long. And after the fight, things get back to normal. I've never gone into the ring to hurt anyone, only to win. You know, most boxers I've met are really gentle people. But politics can be different. Some politicians like to make people angry so that they will follow them. And when people become angry, especially in a group, they don't think about what they are doing, even if they are really good people at heart. What are they so angry about? It seems a Jewish lad has shot a German diplomat in Paris. They say he is your age, Werner. Yes, we heard about the shooting, but that was in France, and we here had nothing to do with it. Why are they taking it out on Jews? It's not fair, is it? You are right. It's not. Champion isn't the first novel that Greenspan has appeared in, no. is it? No, it's not. I had a look at it. I hadn't read it before writing this. It's written in the form of letters that Greenspan wrote and telling the story entirely from his point of view. I don't think he was that articulate myself. I read another one, which is The Officer's Boy, I think it was called, which is about Grinchpan, 
which just tells the story, just fleshes it out. It tells the story from the Schwab book and from the other book, which is uh, Kirschen Schwab. And there are others who wrote about him. But this is factual. And they disagree as well. And then there was Hannah Arendt, the philosopher and writer who, when she was attending Eichmann's trial in Jerusalem in 61, wrote in the New York Times that she thought that Herschel was no more than simply a narcissistic adolescent and wondered whether the Nazis had put him up to it. So do you know that there was another assassination, though, a similar assassination in 1936 in Davos, when a Jewish medical student, a bit older than Herschel, went to the head of the Nazi party in Switzerland, in Davos, and shot him, a man called Gustloff. Hitler wanted to exact real revenge as a result of that, but the Winter Olympics were going on. And then after that, there were the Summer Olympics in Berlin. So they decided to shelve it and took the opportunity of Herschel's act to make Kristallnacht. But they also thought that since the two cases were so similar, they had to be part of conspiracy. And throughout, the Germans believed that Grinchpan was just a stupid adolescent and was useless, that there was a large conspiracy, a Jewish-led conspiracy, a world Jewish conspiracy to discredit Germany, because Germany was the only country who told the truth about the way the world really was and racial theory and so Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How did the Jewish community view Grinspan and his actions? I don't know. I think many in Germany, of course, would not have been happy about it. We have to remember also that until really the 30s, a huge proportion of Jews were not Zionists. They were assimilationists. And the Zionist message, which then took the Holocaust as a justification for Zionism, really dates from then. But there are interesting and fascinating stories that come out of that, which I won't go into here. But there was an Evian conference that Roosevelt had set up to see what could be done for Jews living in Germany. This was set up in 38. And no country would take many. Britain took 10,000 children. But no country would take many Jews, with the exception of the Dominican Republic, where the young president, Trujillo, offered to take over 100,000. But the World Zionist Organization, run by Ben-Gurion at the time, said, no, if they can't go to Palestine, they're not going anywhere. And that was that. So these things have complicated. You know, the Harvara Agreement, which got Ken Livingston almost kicked out of the Labour Party, if not kicked out of the Labour Party. What actually happened? There was a deal between the regime, they even printed medals with a star David on one side and swastika on the other, where Jews could take some of their property out of Germany in re if they bought German goods and sold them there. This was worked out with the World Jewish Congress, and, no, the Zionist organization, and the Nazi government. 
but you have to have money to get out. In your book, you have the lives of Grinspan and Schmeling converging at the concentration camp of Sachsenhausen. Did they ever meet in real life? Don't know. I expect not. I have no evidence that they met, but I know that Grinspan was at Sachsenhausen, and I know that Schmeling did do tours to set up boxing competitions, both in army bases and concentration camps. So it's feasible, but it's a dramatic twist. I don't know that Grinspan really gave two thoughts about Schmeling, although as an eight-year-old or so when Schmeling won the championship for Germany and going to German state schools and having German friends as well as Jewish friends, he might have been very excited about it and he might have been a great Schmeling fan. I know that and so then I invented that and then when Max Baer became champion who was half Jewish and wore a Jewish star on his boxing trumps, he switched his allegiance to bear because, anyway, Schmeling was hobnobbing with Hitler and all those guys. How did you first come across the stories of Grinspan and Schmeling? Well, I suppose I've always known about Grinspan. It's part of the mythology of my subculture. Uh, not mythology, but part of the story. To some extent, it's mythological. Schmeling, I became interested in boxing as a child. When I was about five, I lived in the United States, as you can probably tell from my accent. Anyway, as a child, I would go to this bungalow colony it was known as in the Catskills, which was about half a mile from Grossinger's Hotel and Airport. They had turned the hangar of the airport into a training camp for Rocky Marciano. So I would go there and watch him train, and I remember one happy day he shook my hand with his boxing glove, and I was over the moon. So I became very interested in Rocky Marciano. And then, as a late teenager, I was living in Texas, some of my friends and I went down to Houston to support Muhammad Ali in his refusal to accept the American draft. And I saw him for the first time in the flesh. And he was huge. You don't see that on the screen because he was so live. And he was absolutely beautiful. I mean, he was just a stunning man. And so, as I say, boxing for some reason became part of my cultural baggage, my ethnic culture. When you started considering their stories, why did you choose to treat them particularly as historical fiction rather than telling them in a factual sense? They don't tell much, but the whole point of historical fiction, as Hilary Mantel and Alison Weir and people like that will tell you, is to illuminate and personalize the stories of the people who are actors. But also, and I think this is important, histories tend to have a proclivity for mythologizing the people they talk about and assuming that they had one role in the world, which was just the role that they play in history. What historical fiction can do is to show the ambivalence and the ambiguity and the contradictions and all of those things that make human people human. And that's really why it's exciting to write historical fiction. Not because of the strength of the story, one hopes one has a strong story, but because of the ambivalence of, well, human beings are ambivalent and contradictory characters, you know, and that's what makes us human. Can I ask you a little bit about your process? Because you have these two parallel stories running in tandem throughout the book. 
Do you write the two stories separately and then weave them together? Or do you find that in order to create pace that both have to be written simultaneously? Well, it's neither one or the other. I mean, at the beginning, I wrote their stories a bit apart. And I started in 36 for Max when he beats Lewis. Well, just before that when he's watching a boxing film of Lewis. And with Grinchpan, I started with him leaving school. But as the novel progressed, I found myself writing the chapters in story order rather than separately. So at first I shuffled that deck together and put them in a rhythmic, really rhythm is important in a novel, in a rhythmic arrangement that worked in terms of keeping the reader caring about what happens next and keeping both characters in view, as it were. But as the story, I hope the story is engaging enough, both stories, so that people will be interested in what happens next, then I started conflating the two stories. Although, as I say, they don't meet. So these stories are conflated in time rather than in geography, with the exception of the very last scene of the novel. How do you go about researching a book like this? Obviously, they're the historical sources, but to what extent do you delve into what people were eating, what they were wearing? Absolutely. And we're so blessed as writers over the last 20 years with the internet, with YouTube. I mean, for example, I had a copy editor who worried when she first read the book that my language, I used too much dialogue and the people probably didn't sound like that. And then I pointed her to YouTube of Schmeling talking on newsreels and Lewis talking, and she said, I take it all back. Being able to go to those sources, seeing how they dressed, seeing what they spoke about, seeing how they communicated, seeing what sort of accent Schmeling had when he spoke English, all of those things. And again, there, you know, about the Third Reich, there's endless amounts of material, not very much personal material, but endless amounts of material. So yeah, and then there, if you go to images, you Google images, you know, fashion in the 30s or... I mean, that's not hard to find. There are plenty of photographs of Max Schmeling and Annie Andre in the 20s and 30s. I mean, you can, you know, what they ate, well, what do Germans eat? They're mostly brown food, and they ate the den too. And what Grinspan ate from his milieu, rather tasteless kosher food. Not that kosher food is necessarily tasteless, but the kosher food prepared in the way that they were likely to have prepared, it probably was, because culinary arts was not part of the culture. You have to immerse yourself a lot in an era when you're writing a book like this. Are there any other stories that you've come across that have sort of triggered the desire in you to consider a further novel or stories or or even novels? Yeah, well, there is a novel that I'm working on, but I'm struggling a little bit. It's a comedy, and it's um, about sex and about microprocessors and ballistic missiles. It's set in Dallas in 1962, and a British man and his 16-year-old son, a man has been headhunted by Texas Instruments, and they come down there for six months. And during the time they're there, the Cuban Missile Crisis happens. Now, I was there as a 17-year-old in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I remember what it felt like. But I also remember that as a 17-year-old, most of the politics were way above my head, and mostly I was trying to get laid. 
I wasn't really that interested. And I was tended to parrot what friends were saying, what friends' parents were saying. But what is so fascinating researching the Dallas book, even though I was there, is how astonishingly right-wing it was there. They really, really were right-wing, tooth and claw. And so people coming from a place where there's a national health service, where people are not very rich, but fairly, I mean, he was a research scientist at Farnborough, the father, and he's brought to Texas Instruments, he's got a good income, the son goes to grammar school, all of that. To be faced with what was essentially, with the exception of a few pockets, a remarkably adolescent idiocracy is what the novel's about. But I don't know that I can develop a story like that without just making it a series of events, because what can you say about it? See, the Grinchpan story works really, really well because it's a great story and I didn't have to make it up. Here's a story where I have to make something up, not the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I have to make up people's lives and give them motivations and give them a reason for being in the book and give myself a reason for writing the damn thing. Do you think it becomes a bit addictive that once you've started writing and you've had two novels published now that you feel you're on a roll that you want to keep writing, keep exploring new subjects? Yeah, I think that's true, but each one's hard. The first one wasn't hard because I didn't know I was writing a novel and it took me 10 years to discover that really what I'd done there was write a novel and I put it together in novel form. This one took about three years. But you see, I'm also, my other life, I'm a composer. I've written a lot of music for film and television and theatre and all of that. So there's another part of me which functions as a musician. And I must say that as I get older, I have a stronger desire to write words than I have to write music. I know it sounds arrogant, but I find writing words harder and more of a challenge. I find writing music not that hard. Because it's not so exact, really. You know, I mean, in the end, if you use a B-flat or a D and you write the piece of music, no one's going to care. And notice, you'll know, but nobody else will. But if you put a word in the wrong place that says the wrong thing and has implications for people's understanding that you do not understand, that's rather challenging not to do that. And of course, you don't really 100% get it right. Professor Stephen Deutsch, thank you very much for joining us. Historical Fiction When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. 
code PROGRAM.